Last week, we began our new series in Colossians by examining a, a little science alongside religion. Right? I know that's kind of crazy, right? But those two things can actually coexist, science and religion. Uh, now, I mentioned I had read a couple of just really awesome, fascinating books on the human brain. And I'm a layman, but I'm just, I'm just learning about these things. And you can get last week's sermon online or via podcast, but... One thing we discovered is that though we rely on them for our most crucial determinations of truth, our five senses are not as reliable as we'd like to think. In communicating what's actually there in front of us back to the brain. And of course, the, we, we talked about the different analogies for this. We did a little, uh, did a little experiment, a visual experiment with this in the service, but we know that's just from the magic industry. The magic industry has sold 5 billion magic kits with those brightly colored hankies, you know, based on this fact, that even if you focus on an object with your eyes, we cannot see the full picture, the full truth of what's in front of us. Politicians, marketers, rhetoricians, so many others have caught on to this fact and have often deceived us because they've studied what the common senses are able to pick up and what they will tend to miss. So not only do these plausible kind of deceptions form the backdrop that the backdrop truth claims in our world, but they form the backdrop of Paul's letter here in Colossians. All kinds of claims, promises, people who are competing for attention, who are competing for loyalty, who are competing for belief. And what happens is, in short, basically, it starts to reverberate through this church. It's what Paul calls this in chapter 2, deceptive philosophies. That's the backdrop of this letter for which Paul offers as antidotes, learning, Loving and living Christ. Paul organizes the book like this. Starts with learning, moves on to loving, and finishes with living Christ. And so that's how we're going to study it. And what we're going to do is we'll look at one degree of deception and then the antidote. We'll spend a few weeks looking at the antidote. Then the next degree of deception and the antidotes or antidote, and then the third degree of deception and the antidote, and then we'll be done with Colossians. That's kind of the uh, organization there in a, in a nutshell. But this morning we're going to focus on the first of three degrees of deception. And I'll summarize it like this. And I want you to hear this. Good advice from a good source is like good news from the source. That's the first degree of deception. The good advice <clears throat> from a good source, it's like good news from the source. Now, a couple disclaimers here. Few of us give advice as such anymore, right? Because hardly anyone asks for it. Uh, so we make claims and we make judgments often loudly. And ending with statements like, I'm just saying. <laughs> and we're going to count this for our purposes this morning. All of this falls under this idea of advice. But what starts to happen is that we begin to regard sayings, uh, slogans with the same weight as the gospel and Jesus. 
think, oh, that, that's pretty good. That's pretty practical. That's pretty relevant. I like the way that's said. And so we regard it as the same way as the gospel, the good news of Jesus and Jesus himself. And that's a problem. So let's look at this deception more closely because Paul addresses it in his letter. Turn with me, if you would, to Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 4. You're going to need a Bible this morning. Now, Paul has been talking up to this point about uh, learning Christ and the importance of learning his message of good news. And then we get to verse 4, and he says this, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Notice, plausible. Not idealistic pipe dreams, uh, not obvious propaganda, not uh, being under the sway of some charismatic leader, but something that's actually plausible to believe in and to build our lives around. So he says that, and I'll skip ahead with me if you would to verses 16 and 17 of chapter 2, where he goes on to say, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival or a new moon festival or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So we have here in these verses, 16 and 17, is advice to make life complete. Then as in now, advice to make life complete, and in the right context, and as a supplement to faith, it actually can be decent advice. For instance, so we see, he talks about eating and drinking. Eating and drinking, certain things are exactly what you need to make your life complete. That's what people are telling this church. If you eat this, if you drink this, it's exactly what you're going to need to make your life complete. And for us, we can relate to this, right? A certain diet, we just get on it, and we'll make our life complete. For, I know for uh, our family, due to how it's supplemented, enhanced our life, we are tempted to preach the gospel of gluten-free. Right? It has become a powerful message. In this context, the first century Colossae, there were more religious connotations associated with Old Testament dietary laws, but the idea, the essence of the idea is still the same, and that is, you are what you eat. If you do this, you will be defined, you will be completed, you will be identified by what you eat and what you drink. You will become it, it will complete you. So that's one idea expressed here. The other idea expressed here is that taking part in certain events will complete your life in Christ. In of themselves, these various Old Testament festivals, like the New Moon Festival, would certainly supplement appreciation of God, supplement an appreciation of Jesus. I know when I was in high school, I had the opportunity to attend a Messianic Passover Seder. All right, it was great. It was, a, it was at a Marriott ballroom, Jews who believed in Christ, and I got my own little yarmulke thing, right, which was pretty cool. Uh, and it was, it was fantastic, and God used it to greatly enhance and supplement my understanding of the person of Jesus and why he specifically needed to suffer for me to save me from death. It supplemented my faith. And what we have here in Colossians is the equivalent of insisting, look, come with me to the Christian concert because it will change your life. Come with me to this speaker. He will change your life. Why does some such advice seem so plausible? 
You know, we hear these things, we just, we just take it in. Why does it feel so plausible? Well, one, it appeals to common sense. It appeals to our common sense. You've observed people coming back from ecstatic concert experiences, people who've rested on the Sabbath and replenished themselves, people who've abstained from certain foods, stayed away from certain drink, and you've witnessed it, and their lives do seem qualitatively better. You can think of a number of examples of this. And you've just used your common sense of sight, of hearing, to determine that a person's life does seem more complete. It does seem complete. But as we chronicled earlier, such senses are not as reliable as we estimate. As an objective standard of truth. We see things, they appear certain ways, but we know, we know from our own lives, that what people show on the surface isn't really what's going on. You've got to be careful about that. The second reason these, this kind of advice seems so plausible that it relates to everyday life. Now, we may not see this immediately in Colossians here, but let me, let me draw it out a little bit. When we talk about life philosophy, when you hear people talk about life philosophy, worldview, uh, you might think of terms like Marxism, life philosophy, uh, social Darwinism, nihilism, atheism, naturalism. Big terms that some of us know, uh, fewer of us can spell, myself included. Uh, but when did someone last knock on your door and say, excuse me, sir, I'd like to discuss with you uh, Stephen Hawking's last book on the cosmos and how it marginalizes the possibility of an omnipotent deity? Right? Did someone knock on your door and ask you those questions? Right? Probably not. You know, they're not out mowing their lawn and bringing that up. Or, or you know, hey, Sherry, I noticed, uh, I noticed you're on your way to church again today. That's great. Really cool, but have you considered the possibility of satisfaction through social Darwinism? Right? You, did you ever think about it? No, I just, I gotta, you know, I just got to put the deodorant on. I gotta get experience. Sorry. <laughs> you know, I mean, that, right? Instead, you're more likely to hear a neighbor during your morning stroll or routine to church say something like, hey, how are you going to church? Whatever works. Anyway, whatever makes you happy. Everyday advice and everyday judgments about truth and life. That's what we're more likely to hear. And that's actually what's going on really here in Colossians. There's these, these kind of slogans and this kind of advice. And in their book, Hidden Worldviews, Steve Wilkins and Mark Sanford put it this way. They said, the most powerful influences come from worldviews that emerge from culture. They are all around us but are so deeply embedded in culture that we don't see them. In other words, the worldviews are hidden in plain sight. We will occasionally call them lived worldviews because they are more likely to absorb them through cultural contact than adopt them through a rational evaluation of competing theories. You get the idea, right? You get it from being around the water cooler. You get it in casual conversation. We, we get it through social media, through reading a quick news story and feature, and we absorb it into our lives. We, don't, we pay them little mind, and if someone asks us if we actually lived by them, we would of course respond, no, I don't, no, I don't live by these things. But when big decisions are finalized, or monumental moments require a response, there they are. We say them to a spouse. We hear them from a friend. 
Now, these authors call them lived worldviews. I've also heard them called uh, Starbucks philosophies. I like that too, but because they're so pervasive in real life. But I'm going to call them this morning Facebook advice. All right, uh, because I see their kind show up on Facebook uh, as in everyday life. A motley crew of slogans, advice, evaluations of life that could at times be helpful unless they become the verdict, the judgment by which we live and by which our lives are measured. That's when it becomes a problem. And it happens more subtly than we think, friends. Because, look, all advice, we can categorize all advice this way. All advice either saves, supplements, or sabotages. Saves, supplements, or sabotages. And one of the problems becomes when we think one piece of advice, well, oh, that's the key, that's going to save us, when it's really just meant to supplement Jesus, supplement the power of the good news. And what happens, unlike here in Colossians, where actually in verse 18, Paul goes on to make clear that there's a person who's behind this, and some of this deceit's intentional. In our case, the deceit is usually unintentional. People have usually pretty good intentions, but it's no less deceptive as we absorb it into our life. So what I'm going to do this morning, I'm going to list for us, and I want you to just kind of make a note as we go along which ones might relate to you. And, but I'm going to list Facebook advice that people often so get behind that it starts to seem plausible. It starts to be, seem plausible as saving advice. I should mention, by the way, oh, I should mention this, as a, as a social experiment in preparation for today, uh, I asked a number of Facebook friends, and they graciously agreed, to spend some of their Facebook cred, all right, some of their uh, credibility, and post these things as status updates over the last three or four days. So that so you're going to see next to each piece of Facebook advice, you're going to see how many likes and comments. All right, it got along with it. All right, so uh, you ready to look at this? Here we go. If you're not into Facebook, sorry, just still applies. We can move along here. We're going to start with secular Facebook advice, which unintentionally deceives. Our people don't mean to deceive us with it, but it still deceives nevertheless. Number one, it's all good. All right, nine likes, three comments. When tensions or problems on the horizon come up on the horizon based on a truth claim, everything starts to become all good. Right? We don't want to offend. We don't want to ruffle feathers. So your truth, my truth, you, me, all good. That's all good. I know you just stated something crazy about uh, Eastern philosophy and uh, the, the eternal being being the real truth. It's all good. Right? Uh, it, it, universalism, Unitarianism, at its worst. I mean, the Bible actually says, Romans 3, <laughs> that no one is good. No one person is good, not even one, but we're just going to say, ah, it's all good. Sabotages. It's been sabotage. It seeps into our life and our living. Uh, what about this one? No worries. Two likes, one comment. All right. Often said, when someone wrongs or offends you, or you wrong and offend someone else, we say, what? No worries. Jesus tells us in John 23 that if you've trusted your life to him, we have as a powerful resource forgiving others. And it has, as he says there, eternal ramifications to forgive others, to speak forgiveness into someone's life. 
But, saying I forgive you, it seems so condescending. Right? I don't really want to say that. I mean, that implies someone has really wronged me and sinned. I'm just going to say no worries. We have this power of forgiveness as Jesus has so forgiven us in sabotage. This kind of regular slogan that nice can sabotage. Let me give you another one. Uh, whatever works. I got this person got 20 likes and two comments. Person who posted this one. And what we don't consider when we say whatever works or someone says it to us is what does it actually work in solving? Say whatever works, but what does it work toward? Because then Buddhism or meditating on the inner spirit during yoga may work to bring you serenity. But not even deep breathing and meditation can defeat pride and selfishness. Such things don't work to change circumstances, or it only can change your response to circumstances. But Jesus and the good news can change both. And so that might supplement your faith in some cases, but more often sabotage. Let me give you some more. These, now, wait a minute. These are going to be Christian. Yeah, I've got some Christian Facebook advice that unintentionally deceives. I put Christian in quotes. Christian Facebook advice which unintentionally deceives. You ready for these? All right. I realize this is going to hit close to home for some. And I uh, want you to hear and consider. Let go and let God. All right. Five likes, one comment. Uh, now, this can be good for the person who lives a very disciplined life, honestly deals with sin, and forgiveness, and who lives life in response to grace, as God calls us to do. Right? In other words, someone who's living out their faith, but they're a little bit controlling, they're regimented, and it might be good to say this, but usually God does not want us to let go. He wants you to get in and hang on. To teach you, to mold you, to guide you during difficult circumstances. This phrase is often easy to say, and even easier to hear as an excuse for the spiritually flabby. You know what I mean? Instead of causing us to actually turn to God, it permits one to let go and let me. To let go and let me go on living as I was before. That's how we often say to people, oh, oh, don't worry, just let go and let God. Oh, I don't need to change. I don't need to grow here. I don't need to stay in this and trust him and plead with him for help. So sometimes it can supplement, but it often sabotages. Let me give you another one. Just be real. 12 likes, 3 comments. Uh, if you're real with people, if you're real about your relationship with God, that counts for everything. If you just be real. And who says, no, God wants you to be real and to change. You might... Display who you are, but he also wants you to become more like him. So that advice can supplement, but it can't save you. Just being real isn't going to a magic pill that God will use just to automatically save you. Uh, I'm just being honest. Nine, li- nine likes, nine comments. Uh, now, this is, this is said in a couple different ways, right? We say, oh, I'm just being honest. Anyone here ever say that before? Right? I've done that many times. Uh, if you're saying in reference to yourself, you're just like, hey, that's just who I am. I'm just being honest. That's great, but now humbly change. 
or the other one, right? Humbly repent, ask God for help, you can change. We often use this as an excuse, like, well, hey. Now, if you say it about other people, you say it about others, really God and that other person are the only ones who should be hearing your honesty. Right? Even if you share it with a group of people, and even if you share it with your bestie, right? Hey, I, you know, so-and-so, yada, yada, yada. I'm just being honest. Right? Well, if you're honest about everything in life, if that's your policy, you're just going to blurt out everything you're thinking, that's going to be a problem. It's actually going to sabotage your life. And you need two more. In my experience, 16 likes, 6 comments. If this phrase begins the majority of your sentences, if it begins the majority of your advice, in my experience, in my experience, in my experience, realize that there is a truth that both interprets your legitimate experiences and a truth that trumps your perceived experiences. Because there are a lot of cases where we have to hold on to this even when our eyes and our ears tell us something else. That's hard. But if we always appeal to our experiences, we actually end up sabotaging them. But sometimes it can help supplement as well to give advice. Last one. God won't give you anything you can't handle. All right, 15 likes, one comment. This piece of advice promotes self-reliance, right? You know, in yourself, you have the ability to conquer this. Now, the objection here comes from 1 Corinthians 10, 13, where Paul says, hey, look, no temptation has overtaken people, has overtaken you that is not common to everyone. God is faithful. He won't let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with that temptation, you also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So we see this, well, oh, look, see? God doesn't give me anything you can't handle. You have the ability. But the ability Paul speaks of here is every person's, not every person's ability to have the inner resources to overcome on their own, but the ability everyone has to look to and depend on God for the way of escape. Notice, He provides the way of escape. So faced with temptation, with difficulties, Jesus is our exodus. Isn't that awesome? He provides the way of escape. In fact, it's kind of funny. When one, of my, when one friend, Facebook friend, posted this phrase, God won't give you anything you can't handle, as a Facebook update, uh, <laughs> their much older dad right, rep- replied to it rightly and said, don't you mean God won't give you anything he can't handle? That's right. So this kind of advice can sabotage us because it directs us inward. God calls us to look outward for the way of escape. Okay. So those are some some advice that unintentionally deceives. I want to give a few also sources that unintentionally deceive us. Okay. Uh, Number one, persons or information outlets. It gives us information to suit our fancy. I just want to say suit your fancy. No no one says that anymore. All right. So, uh, right? It, it supports what you planned anyhow, right? It could be a, uh, just that go-to place. It could be a news source that you really like. It supports all your views. It could be a, a, a friend of the family. It could be a, it could be a uh, 
a successful coworker or boss that you just rely on them as your go-to place for information and advice. It's often just saying what we want to hear. Number two, hurt people. Hurt people often unintentionally deceive. As a good friend of mine likes to, to say, uh, hurt people hurt people. And we, and we want to pray for healing. We want to pray to overcome. But the reality is we have to be aware that hurt people hurt people. And one of the chief ways they hurt is through deception, often unintentionally. So they might leave out, for instance, a fair and complete picture about another person. Let me give you an example. That could even happen in a church. Oh, man, they dominate discussion in community group. Always talking. Or... All those emails they send out, they're so annoying. Why do they always send them? And they're so long. And Without also stressing the positive traits of that person, the gifts and talents that person contributes to the body of Christ. And so they give this incomplete picture of a person. And in doing so, what they start to do is get you to believe that there's always something better. There is something better as it pertains to fellowship, as it pertains to church as it pertains to the Christian life and this is not it. Man, does that kill. Oh, there's something, you know, yeah, when we talk about the Christian life, it's always something else, but not not this. Let me give you the last one here. Yourself. We often unintentionally deceive ourselves. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart is deceitful above all things. Our own heart deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who, who can understand it? Understand my heart. A guy named C.K. Barrett takes it a step further and says that man has a habit of making a Messiah in his own image. All right, so we even deceive ourselves about our Savior. We think of him like us with our own desires and own preferences. Here's the thing. We all have to make judgments in life. So when we get these life advice, life philosophies from different sources, we have to make judgments about that. We can't say yes to everything or no to everything, right? Because if you do that, you're going to either become a self-serving heathen with a short life, might end up in a ditch, or on the other extreme, a rigorously regimented, self-righteous person, right? To be the equivalent of a modern-day nun or monk. All right, come one or the other. But in these cases I just mentioned, these examples I just mentioned, someone is either passing judgment on life in general or on your situation in particular. How are you going to judge it? How are you going to judge what people say, what you hear, what you see? Paul very strongly states, as strongly as one can in the Greek language, to never let someone else's judgment prevail. Unless it's God's judgment. Never let their judgment become your knee-jerk reaction. And then he goes on in verse 17 to say, the substance is Christ. Whereas other judgments, other advice are shadows. So any good from all good is a gift from God through Christ. Praise Jesus. No worries can only result from a confidence in a mediator who lives to pray and intercede for us forever. How else can you have no worries? It's a shadow of what's real through Jesus Christ. 
That's why Paul, in, in response to this plausible deception, introduces his three-pronged antidote by praying it for the Colossians. We're just going to look at this at a real high level briefly. Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, verses 9 through 14 of chapter 1. Verses 9 through 14, Colossians 1. We're just going to look at this again on a real high level to see a general pattern here. And so from the day we heard, Colossians, we heard about your faith, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. So notice, he's praying for a knowledge of the will, wisdom, and understanding, which is going to lead to wanting to please God. Because you know Him, you know that He loves you, you learn about Him, you soak up what He has, the truth He has to say to you, so you want to please Him, which leads to walking out, bearing fruit in your actual life. You see the pattern here. And by the way, that leads back to increased knowledge. Learning, loving, living Christ. And then rinse and repeat. And then you grow in that, and then you grow in that. You see that pattern here? Paul previews then learning the power of of the good news. In verse 11 through 13, he goes on to say, may you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. By the way, endurance with patience and joy doesn't sound like let go and let God, does it? It's that enduring, patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. So Paul is previewing learning this power of the good news of Christ, not to be confused with good advice. Not to be confused with good advice. And then he previews learning the sufficiency of the source in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Verse 14. Not to be confused with just any source, but the source. By the way, I want you to note something back in verse 9, real quick here. When he talks about knowledge of the will, wisdom, understanding, basically this idea of learning Christ, what does he say about it? Be filled with it. Most of us are content with a a thimble, a a shot glass, if you will, worth of learning to get us past whatever's right in front of us. If you can just get us through the day, that's that. I'll stop there. We're content with that. Now I started off this morning making a scientific claim that our our common senses miss far more than we think, and thus our brains are often filling in critical data that's not actually there. Having said this, though, our, our minds are truly like sponges with data that is there. I mean, soaking up sensed experiences, and, and, and our minds are affected by the quantity of those experiences. Let me see what I, tell you what I mean by that. Uh, we, we know this because of urban legends, right? Myths and urban legends. Uh, stories that you believe, stories that are out there because you've heard them so often, they've got to be true. There are websites dedicated to this. Snopes.com, you have heard of this, that, that takes like, has these categories, dozens of categories and subcategories 
debunking Fords and emails and various things you've heard over the course of your life and that are urban legends. Let me tell you some that I bought into, just because of so many times I heard them. Uh, Granddaddy Longlegs, the spider, uh, most poisonous of spiders, right? But their fangs aren't big enough to pierce human flesh. Anyone ever hear this before? Yes. Look, I mean, I believe this really, I'm honestly, up until this week. I was unsure. And frankly, it's just not true. Yeah, the brown recluse is up there. Isn't the most, probably the most poisonous. Uh, how about this one? Walt Disney was cryogenically frozen. Anyone ever hear that one? Come on, yes. Some of you were shamingly put. It's not, don't be ashamed. Oh, we've all heard of it. You know, his head maybe. It's his body. I don't know if they're both together. Cryogenically frozen. Uh, but unfortunately, the records do state, state records, he was cremated in 1966. And despite popular myth, he is not buried under the Pirates of the Caribbean ride at Disneyland. And it's not factual. All right, so we, there are these urban legends, and our minds are like sponges, and that the more we hear or see something, the more we, likely we are to retain it as true. So I'm going to conclude this morning in that knowledge with a tale of two sponges. The first tale involves an actual sponge, an actual dishwashing sponge like this one. All right, we're familiar with these. Theoretically, you have to buy them unless perhaps you're a bachelor who just uses dishwashing liquid and just, you know, rubs with your hand. I've been there before, all right? Uh, but years ago, in an effort to make a point about beliefs that we absorb from our environment, and I was making this point with high schoolers, I used this passage from Colossians 2, and what I did was, the week before I taught on it, I asked them to take with them a dish sponge, or actually half a dish sponge, and to, to moisten it and then wipe it every place they go. Or wherever they go, to just wipe it. And it was, my request was just strange enough uh, so that most of them took me up on it. I love that about high school. They'll, they'll, they'll kind of do some crazy things, which is, which is nice for, this, for these object lessons. But, uh, so that they would rub in part of their bedroom, to, at their breakfast table, in a classroom, in, in their girlfriend or boyfriend's car, right? Uh, spilt Starbucks coffee, uh, locker rooms. And I'm pretty sure parties, because a couple of them smelled like beer, all right? Uh, either that or something seriously started to ferment <laughs> over a week of just having it moist and getting all kinds of smells. But each, each was unique, but had very potent smells when they brought it back. And the point was this, that if you are hearing, you're seeing something enough, your mind not only starts to believe it, but you start to reek it. Right, it starts to become part of who you are. You start to smell like it. And so we must consciously make judgments. Constantly make judgments when we're, we're seeing what we're hearing, what is presented as reality. To know whether we should adopt it or expel it from our minds. And that gets back to what Paul says, right? Don't let anyone make these judgments for you. No one. The second sponge named Mary. In Luke 10, 38 through 42, we hear about her. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Go on, tell her to help me. 
And the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Martha has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And when we read this, if you've read this before, we typically conceive of Martha, I think, immediately running around to clean up the house once Jesus arrived. Right? He's in the door, she's running around. Oh my gosh, Jesus is here, let's go. But what we miss, then, is the detail that she's the one who welcomes him into the house. And in this culture, if you welcome someone to their house, that meant you would spend at least a brief time of sitting and talking with someone. So I think what actually happens here is that Martha listened to what she deemed enough. I'm going to listen for a little while. That's enough teaching, enough learning, shot glass worth of teaching to encourage her, get her on her way to doing in other words, just enough teaching to help with the doing. Just enough teaching so I can live my life to please Jesus. But just enough. I think like so many of us today, we are obsessed with the practical. We get what we think is just enough to fill the tank. So we can get on to doing all kinds of things. Even good things. Even serving like Martha. But in the course of doing and in the course of interacting... And of course, I've never quite seen the difference we'd hope we'd make in the world we live in. We pick up and we absorb what others claim works well for them. We start to try it out. We become distracted. We try it out because we don't have roots. We don't have the roots that Mary has. Mary sets herself up to ironically become the greater servant the more practical doer, because she first sits to learn. She absorbs the teaching of Jesus. And so he says, Mary has chosen the one thing necessary, because in fact, a rooted belief in Jesus charts the truest course for a life lived for Jesus. A rooted belief in Jesus charts the truest course for a life lived for Jesus. Why Jesus says what she has chosen will not be taken from her. That's not some vague divine promise of power, but it's the fact that she gets the order right here. The portion she chooses first was learning, was belief in the good news from the source, which so roots her, so that as she does, as she interacts, as she lives and even experiences failure in her life, she doesn't deviate from him who saves. She's rooted. It won't be taken from her because it can't be taken from her. Her roots are too deep. I want to encourage you to get the order right, friends. You know, I don't rush ahead to questions of how to, questions of the practical, but spend time learning Christ. Let me just give you a simple way to do this. this is next week, we're going to learn Christ, our source from Colossians 1, 15-20. I encourage you this week, spend time meditating on the incredibly rich passage, Colossians 1, 15-20, and soak up Christ who roots us for everyday living. Let's pray. Lord, deception is not an easy topic. There's a lot of twists and turns. There's a lot of gray area. And so it takes us in our minds, a lot of engaging on this topic and, and what you have to say about it. But 
Lord, help us not fall into the deception that good advice, plausible advice from a good source is the same thing as good news from the source. It is not. There are things in life that we hear, that we absorb, that can supplement our faith. In some cases, they sabotage our faith, but they can also help our faith at times. But then we start to live by them. We make decisions by them. We say it to others as if it's the truth of Scripture and that's the power to save them out of circumstances and indeed save their lives from death. God, let no one else judge these things for us. Give us the wisdom and discernment to judge them for ourselves. And remember that there's only one piece of advice that saves that Jesus died in our place to save us from death. And only one person who saves. That's Jesus himself. And we pray all this in his name. Amen.